Our text this evening is found in the book of Esther, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through uh, the end of the chapter, 23. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Aziris, after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return the second harem in Kassadia Shagiriz, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abal, the king, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Azirah, into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in the sight of more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Begthen and Terash, two of the king's eunuchs, who gathered the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherez. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to the Queen Esther, to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in, on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king.
that better? Okay. All right. Glad we got that figured out. Let me pray, and we will get to work on this text together. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercies to us, which are new every morning. We thank you, Lord God, that your mercies are even still valid in the evening time. And we praise you, Lord God, for the fact that we can call you our Father. We thank you, Lord God, that we are inheritors of a wonderful, awesome, amazing, everlasting kingdom in which Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is our King and our Savior and our Counselor and our Shepherd and our Friend. And we thank you, Lord God, that we can gather together in your name, Lord Jesus, and worship your holy name and extol your greatness, Lord God. And I pray as we think about this passage of Scripture that you would speak to our hearts and that you would encourage our faith. We thank you, Lord God, for the fact that we could sing your praises. And I pray, Lord, now that you would enter us into worship, that you would continue to keep us in a place of worship as we look in awe of who you are by the preaching of your word. So I pray, God, that you would be with us and that you would reveal your will to us and that you would manifest your glory in our midst. So go before us, we pray. Thank you for how you have worked so far, and I praise, I praise you, Lord God, in faith that you will continue to work and complete the, the good work that you are uh, beginning here in our midst. So, Father, be glorified, we pray. And we ask, Lord God, that you would uh, encourage our faith and strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So if someone were to ask you, what is the most important thing about you, what would you say? If someone were to ask you, what's the most important thing about you, what would you say? And there's many things that probably come to your mind. If you are a Christian who is born again to the living hope of Jesus Christ and you are finding salvation in his name alone, I would commend to you that the most important thing about you is the covenant-keeping love of God. And I know most of you, since you're sitting here in church, and because you've been asked this by a preacher, you probably would say something along the lines of, my faith in Christ is the most important thing about, you, about me. But I want to make a kind of a finer distinction here. And I want to suggest that that's not a wrong answer. <laughs> by no means is it a wrong answer. But I want to suggest that if we get really particular about it, that it's the covenant-keeping love of God towards you that is the most important thing about you, even more important than your faith in Jesus Christ. The most important thing about you isn't really anything that you do or any decisions that you have made or any habits that you practice. In fact, the most important thing about you, I would submit to you, in some ways, actually has nothing to do with you but with everything to do with God and who he is and what he has done for you and what he promises to do in you and through you. So yes, your faith is so foundational to who you are, but actually, prior to your faith, God 
God did something first. And God has shown himself to you in a particular way. And I would commend to you that before you even had faith in God, there was God himself. And he acted in your life. And he is acting in your life continually as you put your faith in Christ. So if we're going to cut this razor thin, I would suggest to you, yes, your faith is probably the most important thing, but even more, and slightly before that, God and his covenant-keeping love to you. I'm going to circle back and come back to that at some point in the sermon But let me review where we were last week in Esther chapter 1. We talked about King Ahasuerus. And he's also known as Xerxes, thankfully. So we will use the name Xerxes because that's much easier to say. He was a mighty king and he was ruling over the biggest empire in the world at this point in history. And not only that, it was the biggest empire at its most powerful point. And he throws a party for six months For all of his officials and all of his servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the 127 provinces that he ruled over were a part of this party. Probably thousands upon thousands of people were at this party for six months, partying, having pleasure, enjoying drink and food and other things that people do at parties. And after the six months of partying, he wasn't ready to be done. Why why stop so soon? So he throws another seven-day party, and this time everybody in the city of Susa was invited, both great and small. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire, and everybody was invited to this party for seven more days. And last week I suggested that King King Xerxes wasn't just trying to be hospitable and he wasn't just trying to be nice by throwing this party. I think it was actually strategic. I think what he was doing was he was trying to consolidate his empire because it spanned over such a large territory. There was people from different languages. There was people from different cultures. There was people from different religions that were there. And I think the time of the party and the centrality of it in his palace was an opportunity for him to kind of consolidate what was going on. And I think he was mobilizing them for war. And in the midst of it, he was revealing his glory. He was showing off how opulent and how wealthy and how powerful and how influential he had become. And his goal, I think, was to wow them into submission. So as to say, if you serve me, if you go to war with me, if you give me yourself, I will offer all of these kingdoms to you. I will give you a slice of this pie. Because you know I'm good for it. You know I have the goods to offer to you. And his, his revealing of his glory, his showing off actually climaxes when he decides to show off his wife, Queen Vashti, by sending for her and calling her to dance in front of a bunch of drunken randy men. And she refuses to do so, and good for her that she did. And the king gets enraged, and he divorces his wife, he divorces Queen Vashti. And today, we're going to be introduced to Esther and to Mordecai in greater detail through the lens of compromise 
and conspiracy and covenant. So we meet these very two important characters, Mordecai and Esther. And we're going to look at them through the lens of compromise, conspiracy, and covenant. So let's jump into that, shall we? Compromise. Let's start with that. King Xerxes is now on the hunt for a new queen, a new wife. And he decides to do this by selecting a harem of the most beautiful women throughout the land. He decides to use his power and to go and to recruit all of the most beautiful ladies over the provinces that he rules over. And he wasn't going to decide the queen based on her brains or her character or her ability to govern or her personality or their friendship, which are things that you really should base your relationship on. And if you're going to get married to somebody, these are valid ways to discern a future spouse for yourself? Are you friends with them? Do they have good character? Are you aligned in your mission to honor Christ and to live for God? No, for King Xerxes, it was beauty over brains. And it was beauty and how she performed in bed, quite frankly. So it was beauty and bed over brains for King Xerxes. And he comes to this realization or he comes to this decision to recruit a wife because the king's young men who attended him came up with this plan for King Xerxes and he agrees. And this is a couple of things we could probably say about this. The king has his young men around him as his council of advisors. Note to self, this is not a good idea to have an advisory board of young men. Young men's brains aren't fully developed yet, right? There's a reason why you have to pay higher car insurance premiums until you're 25 years old, because you lack judgment if you are a 20-year-old man, all right? I was once a 20-year-old man. I should not be making decisions at that point in my life to select a wife for a king. This is why the, the wisdom of the Bible says that the church should be governed by elders, not youngers, Elders, right? There's a chance for a man to, to, to get some miles on him, right? To marry a wife and to learn how to love another woman. To learn how to love, well, I should say, I shouldn't say it that way. To learn how to love a woman, right? To care for a woman. I think every single man who's been married for more than one year or after two years, perhaps, maybe three years, they come away from that and they say, oh my gosh, I didn't know any of that, right? It's a totally life-changing experience to love a different person the way that Christ would have you love them. So, yes, this is bad decision-making by King Xerxes. And it, another thing I think that it teaches us is you have to be very careful about the kind of advisors you have, the kind of counselors you align for yourself in your life. You need people in your life that are going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And all of us are pretty good. Actually, we're pretty good at aligning for ourselves people that tell us what we want to hear, not necessarily what we need to hear. And one of the examples I'll use of this is the way that people leave churches. And I know this gets close to home right now. But I've been in the church for a long time, and almost nobody 
does it this way. Almost nobody comes up to the elders and says, we are prayerfully considering leaving the church. Would you help us discern whether or not that's what you want us to do or that's the path that God would have us lead, lead us on? Almost always, people subtract themselves. They go off and they find counselors People that don't really know what's going on in the life of the church. People don't see that side of their, their, their engagement to the church. And naturally, they're more than likely going to find people that are in that category. And they're more than likely to hear the counsel of, yes, it's okay to leave. And then they come back and they announce, oh, we feel this is from God, we're leaving. And oftentimes it is, but... Those aren't counselors in your life at that point that would really be able to help you discern the will of God at that point. So we're all really good at discerning or or lining up counselors who will tell us what we want to hear, not necessarily what we need to hear. And that's something that I think we can take out of this passage as well. You see, these men, these younger men, what they should have done is they should have told Xerxes, you know what? King Xerxes, you need to repent. You need to repent for your sin of getting angry and in your anger being so blinded by it that you divorced your wife. And you lashed out in anger. And there's clues in the first couple of verses of chapter 2 that he actually does regret his decision. He comes to his senses and realizes that was probably a bad decision. And at this point, what his counselors and what his advisors should have told him is, you should repent. You need to find God in your life, and you need the forgiveness of God. But instead, you know, and here's the reality of life without a God. Without the Almighty God, without the living God, here is life without it. What do I do with my guilt? Well, how do I handle my guilt for my sin? What do they do? They drown it with more pleasure. They pursue more pleasure in hopes that they will just wash pleasure upon pleasure over their guilt in hopes that that would just wash it away. How much do we see that in our land and in our day? The way that people deal with their guilt is that they use more pleasure to cover it up in hopes that that would just wash it away, but it doesn't. And it's really sad, and our hearts should break for the lost who don't have any way to deal with their guilt in a way that they can find a loving, heavenly Father who says, you are forgiven in Christ. We need the blood of Christ to wash over our sins, to forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we not? He doesn't have this, and our hearts in this sense should break for King Xerxes. He doesn't have a God that he can go and repent to. And find forgiveness and be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Instead, he hurls himself into even more pleasure-seeking in hopes that that would take care of it. And it never will. So Esther finds herself surrounded by beautiful women. One of the first things that we are told, in fact, we are told very little about Esther in chapter 2. We didn't read this. We're told very little about Esther. We're told she is beautiful, she was lovely to look at. And this isn't because the Bible only values beauty. It's because that's what was relevant to the story. So we know that Esther is going to be recruited to go into this harem. We know that she's going to be recruited amongst probably hundreds, maybe even up to a thousand other girls who are going to be taken into this harem, and they're going to be competing for one job. 
to be the next wife, to be the next queen, to replace Queen Vashti. Can you imagine that, what that would be like? Esther would spend a year receiving beauty treatments along with every other girl in the harem. Six months of oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. They would also be fed the king's food, which is, by the way, condemned by the Torah, the Jewish law. They would, they would spend six months and they would be eating food at the king's table because probably many of the women who were brought in were probably impoverished. They were probably a little bit scrawny in their figure. And uh, this would have uh, kind of, quote-unquote, fattened them up a little bit so that they would come into their figure and this would enhance their beauty. And you see how highly beauty and sexual pleasure is prioritized in this kingdom, which I believe is characteristic of all the kingdoms of man. You see, we value beauty as American culture. Do we not? It's highly valued. It's highly esteemed. And we value pleasure. And you, you are of special value if you can deliver it. In many ways, life in the harem for Queen Esther, or I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, spoiler alert. Um, in many ways, life in the harem was a lot like life that women and men, to lesser extent, face today in our modern American culture. You see, we may not be shipped off. You may not be shipped off into a palace where you're going to try to um, audition for a king. But the similarity comes in this, that there is almost an unattainable standard of beauty. And it's all around you, right? It's inescapable. You can't turn anywhere. You can't go to the grocery store. You can hardly pump gas without seeing a TV. Everywhere you go, you turn on your phone. There is a standard of beauty, and it is almost unattainable, probably unattainable. And it, and it suggests very subtly, but maybe not so subtly, you must look this way. And it forces us as people in this world, does it not, that we should assess ourselves on the basis of our beauty, both men and women alike. In Xerxes' kingdom, you are either beautiful or you are not. And it's almost as if the Bible, the reason why it pointed out that this is what's important about Esther, her beauty, was because that's the only thing that mattered in King Xerxes' kingdom. That's the only thing that mattered. So as to say, it, nothing else matters. And our American culture isn't too far behind that. It isn't too far behind that. So in that way, it's a little bit like living in this harem, is it not? You may not be stacked up with a thousand other girls or guys, but we are constantly bombarded by a standard of beauty, and it seems unattainable. And the question that we have to wrestle with now, I want to wrestle with this question, is... Whether or not Esther should have subjected herself to this sleazy process. In her defense, life in the ancient Persia was not like life in, US, in the U.S. today. The modern slogan that goes, my body, my choice, you see, that wouldn't translate well into the ancient culture in the world of the Persians, everything anyone possessed, including one, one's own body, could be and was claimed by the empire if the empire wanted it. How about that? 
So in other words, Esther's own body didn't even belong to her. That was property of the king. So she wasn't really in much of a position to, res- to resist or to refuse. That's the kind of world they lived in. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? But still, I think we have to wrestle with this. How would you coach Esther if she will spend a year in the court of a pagan king who objectifies women and treats them as sex objects and trophies? How will we coach our Esther? How would we collectively parent this girl? What would we say and what would we do? Would we give them up? You see, King Xerxes is a sleazy man. He's exactly what you don't want your daughters to bring home. Hello, meet my new boyfriend. His name is Xerxes. I'll have to decide how badly do I not want to go to prison right now, right? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll strike a, a, a compromise. Xerxes, can you tell me what bear spray smells like? This guy was not a good man. He was not a good man. He was probably in his mid-30s, and he has been used to having his way all the time. He gets what he wants all the time. And we see what happens when somebody says no to him. How would you coach her, and how would we coach her if she was going to spend a night with the king, and you knew that they weren't going to be singing songs and playing Connect Four together? And going on walks and swinging on swings and just getting to know one another. That's not what they would be doing. And if the king doesn't like her, you see, you know what she's going to be? She's going to be kicked to the curb. Okay, I'm done with you. Out. I'll never see you again. And you know what? Women in the harem don't ever leave the harem. That's their life. They stay in the palace. It's a, it's a life of luxury but it's a life of being alone in a harem with a thousand other girls who were also kicked to the curb by King Xerxes. That's the situation we're looking at here. You see, Esther typically gets compared to Daniel, who was in a similar predicament. He was in no position to resist the king. And when Daniel and his three friends refused the king, what happened to him? They were thrown in the lion's den. And of course... God saved them. He closed the, lo- the mouths of the lion. You know, and we, we exemplify, we hold up Daniel as a good example, don't we? Um, a good example of faith. Should we expect the same out of Esther? That's a legitimate question. Vashti, Vashti, by the way, refused the king. And in some ways, she showed the blueprint for how to get out of this mess. Just say No. Maybe Esther should have been building up her, like, her ability to belch on demand. You know, and as that moment got closer, excuse me. Now, where were we? How about that one? That would be a good move. That's a mood killer. Maybe it should be alarming to us that Esther was actually really successful in this situation. You see, the king, it said the king loved Esther more than all the other women. You see, there's, there's, there's some things that, you, he, that, that being successful at is actually bad news. Do you ever think about that? I'm really good at robbing banks. That's not something you want to admit at church, right? 
I'm really good. I know how to do this really well. I'm really good at stealing people's identity online. That's not something you want to claim on your spiritual gifts inventory. You see, Esther obviously did something right to win the king's favor. And might I add, a pagan Gentile king who has slept with thousands of women. If Vashti lost her position because of refusing the king, perhaps Esther won it because of her compliance and her willingness. You see, the author subtly draws a connection here between Esther and Vashti. We're told of each of these women and their beauty, and not much more. And Vashti was the one who refused and said, no, I'm not doing it. And Esther did not. So I'll leave it to you to decide. Maybe the writer is just kind of leaving it there, saying, you decide who's the more virtuous one between the two. And there's more to say about this. There's actually a lot more to say that I could never cover in a whole sermon. But let's check this. I'll come back. Let's move on to the second point, conspiracy. So we look at this through compromise. Is there some compromise going on here? Is there a kind of complacency? And the second point that I want to point out is conspiracy. Let's talk about Mordecai. Let's introduce him to our story, shall we? He's also a crucially important character to this whole situation and how it unfolds. And Mordecai, I can't figure out exactly what his relationship is. I put uncle here, but I think it says that she was the, the daughter of his uncle, or her uncle. I don't know. Anyway, her parents died. Mordecai took her as her own daughter and raised her. Good man. But there's actually a double conspiracy going on here. We have to understand this. In the end of chapter 2, Mordecai is able to uncover a plot against the king, King Xerxes. All right? We read this. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. So Mordecai saves his life. Hooray, Mordecai. He should get a promotion, right? Well, here's what happens. Let's look at chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were with who were at the gate at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage <coughs> so do you see the injustice here the writer is putting these two things together to jar our sensibilities so that we would say, that's not right. Haman, I'm sorry, Mordecai saves the king's life, and Haman gets promoted. Why? What's that? And it actually gets worse. It gets much worse. Let me explain. When Haman saw, verse 5 and 6, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, 
Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So now Haman was infuriated with Mordecai. Why? Because Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. So Haman, right? Haman now plans to use his newfound authority to exterminate all the Jews. And this is the most relevant conspiracy on the table. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, and now Haman doesn't just want to annihilate Mordecai. He wants to annihilate Mordecai and all the Jews, because that's who Mordecai is. And it's interesting where Mordecai decides to draw the line. You guys think, think about this for a second with me, if you will. He says, no, I will not bow down to Haman, that Agagite. I will not bow down to an Agagite. Why does he draw the line there? Is this because he is of such great faith? I will not bow down to this pagan ruler. And I would submit to you, you know what? If Mordecai was going to take a stand, why wouldn't he take a stand much earlier than this? Why doesn't he take a stand much earlier than this? Like, for instance, last week I told you there was an edict. The Jews were in exile. They were scattered from Jerusalem, which is where they should be. They were scattered, and there was an edict that allowed them by law to go back to Jerusalem. And some stayed in Susa because they liked it there. They stayed in the Persian Empire. Mordecai and Esther were in that boat. Why didn't Mordecai take a stand and say, we need to go back to Jerusalem? That's where we belong. Or why didn't Mordecai take a stand when Esther was being taken out and put into the king's harem? Why didn't he say, no, I will not allow that to happen. We will go into hiding. Over my dead body will I give you Esther. Why doesn't he take a stand there? Why does he draw the line here? Maybe it's because he's probably more personally offended by Haman. He's offended perhaps that he got the promotion. Mordecai didn't. So Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, his arch enemy now. And the reason why I point this out, the reason why I'm pointing this out is because I want to submit to you that neither Esther nor Mordecai are great models of faith at this point. Up until this point, I don't think Esther or Mordecai are great models of faith. In fact, the fact that Esther goes to sleep with this king, she intends to marry him, even though he was a Gentile, and this is against the Jewish law, there's a number of different things that are stacking up that would suggest they're not of great, upright, upstanding moral character here. And they're not totally devout to their God, you see. And it's possible that maybe they're at a place 
where they have grown to be complacent in the kingdom of Persia. And they are now making compromises. There's compromises that are on the table here. And it's possible, too, that both Esther and Mordecai are actually symbolic of all of the Jews in Susa in the Persian Empire that have kind of fallen asleep spiritually. And they've kind of become complacent and secularized in their time of exile. I think that's what's going on here. And now the Jewish people are in serious danger. They're facing genocide. And maybe perhaps, we'll flush this out in future sermons, maybe perhaps this great threat now that the Jews face is the means that God is going to use to wake them up from their spiritual slumber. Okay, so we talked about compromise, we talked about conspiracy, let's talk about covenant, shall we? Esther is about covenant. God's covenant love, a promise that God makes to his people, a promise that he will never break. And let me highlight the big picture, picture of, uh, the big picture of the book of Esther is also the same as the, the big picture of the Bible. It's one and the same. Esther is about covenant, and the Bible as a whole is about God's covenant. You see, the big picture, picture of Esther has to do with God and his covenant. The major theological point of Esther is that throughout history, God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. That means the way that God sovereignly works in and the lives of people, the way that he orchestrates events, ultimately serve his covenant promises. And Esther is, it, it, it is concerning itself with the Jewish people. And spoiler alert, I already gave this away, God places Esther in a position to save the Jews, and there is a happy ending. And the covenant is also the theme, the major theme, throughout the entire Bible as well. You see, God made a promise to Abraham, he made a promise to Isaac and Jacob, that there would be a savior that comes out of Israel, out of the people, out of the lineage of the Jews to bless the nations of the earth and to be the savior of the world. So in other words, Esther is concerned with a lot more than genocide, you see. As bad as that is, Esther is actually concerned with the promises of God and the salvation that he has promised to the ends of the earth. In other words, if the Jews get exterminated under the powerful kingdom of Xerxes, so do the promises of God to bring a Savior into the world. If the Jews get wiped out, so do God's covenant promises. And we can see that will not happen. If Esther fails, in other words, we don't celebrate Christmas. Everybody under probably age 18 just feels like has a newfound love for the book of Esther, right? So God is a God of covenant. The Bible as a whole is about God promising a people to bring a Savior into the world. Esther is a book that fits into that storyline where we see God's promise potentially threatened 
And we see how God will not let his promise fail. Because God is a God of covenant. The Jews will not get exterminated. Why? Because God made a promise and he will keep it. So if the book were to ask a question, it would be this. Does God's covenant promise still apply to those Jews who were still in Susa? And the answer is, yes, it does. And notice that the writer doesn't really condemn Esther. This is another thing I want to say. She never gets condemned. And she's never applauded either. The author never condemns her, never pats her on the back at this point in the story. So we shouldn't either. We should be careful about condemning her. We should be careful about exalting her right now. And I think this is the point that the author is making. I think this is what the writer is telling us. What is important about Esther at this point in the story isn't that she failed or isn't that she succeeded. It's about God who keeps covenant through it all. Do you see that? The author is rather silent about whether Esther did the right thing or the wrong thing because it doesn't matter. Here's what matters. God God matters. God is the one who's keeping covenant. What's the most important thing about you? God. Your God, whom you serve and whom you believe in, he is the one who is the most important thing about you because he keeps covenant with you. The only other thing that we're told of Esther in chapter 2, besides the fact that she is beautiful, is that she has two names. Hadassah, which is her Jewish name, and Um, Esther, which is actually her Babylonian name. As she went into exile, she was given another name, just like all the other Jews who went into exile, they were given another name. And this is actually kind of interesting because it really, this relates to us, you see. We are Christians now and we live, we are citizens of two kingdoms. We are told in Philippians 3.20 that you are citizens of heaven and we eagerly await a savior, but you're also U.S. citizens. We live in this country, you see, and we have to make a living in this country. We have to build our careers in this country. We do our grocery shopping in this country. We interact with people in this country. We are citizens of the USA. And as good as this country is, probably the best place to live on the face of the planet right now. As good as this country is, don't we see how far it falls from the kingdom of God? Don't we see how much we long for a real righteous kingdom that is ruled in righteousness? We see how difficult it is to practice our faith in this American culture. Do we not? And the the dual name of Esther kind kind of relates to us in the sense that we all are tempted to have a dual identity for ourselves. We're tempted between one kingdom and another. We are. We are tempted to figure out what does it look like for me to be a Christian, a Christ follower, to be a child of the living God. And then at the same time, we're pulled in the direction of this world that beckons us to its ideals and to its values and to its morals. And we struggle in between these two identities. And in that way, Esther's kind of like a good picture for us in in terms of the struggle that it is to live in this world, but not of this world, right? 
And I would say that this book invites us, this chapter invites us as Christians to be more honest with ourselves and realize that living a Christian life and to live as a Christian in this world isn't as simple or as clear as we would like it to be. There are hard decisions to make, difficult waters to navigate through. I want to tell you a story. A few summers ago, on our senior high camping trip, we hike a lot, and one of the high school girls was hiking behind me. We got into a a really, I I love the conversation. It was so helpful for me, and it was so sharpening to me, and I still remember it, even though it was a couple years ago. And this, this gal grew up in a Christian home, grew up in the church, all right, and she had gotten her first job in Elk River. Now she's all of a sudden in the midst of this world, right? And there's this clashing. There's this clashing of, you know, she was expressing, I know that we're supposed to live for God. I know that we're supposed to let our light shine. And I know that we're supposed to stand up for Jesus. I know all of these things, but it is hard. It is hard. It is hard to, to go to this work, to go to this world where there's people who don't ascribe to any of that. And there's pressure. And there's the realization that if you say certain things, and if you do certain things, and if you model certain things, you will be maligned. You will be rejected. You will be left out. You might even be fired in some some circumstances. And I don't think that this... I don't think that this gal was actually weak in her faith. I think what she was doing was wrestling with and pointing, I think, clarifying a weakness in the church. That we have, I think, oversimplified what it means to be a Christian in this world. I think that we've super, made, made superficial kind of answers and offered superficial answers about, oh yeah, just let your light shine. Just stand up for Jesus. Just live for God. That all sounds really good. It really does. But what does that really look like as you go to your jobs, as you go to your neighborhoods, as you encounter unbelievers who are pagan, who know nothing about Christ, who actually maybe have opposing views and volatile views? It is hard. And it's not that easy, is it? So I think the book of Esther actually invites the church to think a little bit more honestly and a little bit more seriously about what this looks like. And I think that it comes to believers. I think it comes to us as believers, and it says in compassionate terms, I know and I understand how difficult it is to bear witness for Christ in this broken broken and hostile world. It's hard. And God's covenant is a great encouragement, you see, to sinners who are often confused And we are often unsure, we're often lacking wisdom, and even scared about how much we should or should not reveal about ourselves, and in what ways and at what times. And I'm not saying that this is a license to just, oh, forget it, I'll just be silent. I am saying that this is a license, though, to take heart and to recognize God understands the difficulty of it. And it's not quite as clear-cut as we'd like to think it is. Living in this world for God, to bear the witness of God, is difficult. It is hard. And there's lots of decisions that will be not clear. So take heart. The kingdom isn't going to rise or fall 
on your successes or your failures. And that is good news. The kingdom did not rise or fall on Esther's successes or her failures. And you are now a part of a new kingdom and you, brothers and sisters, have a new king. You have a new king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived for you and he died for you. He rose again for you and he solidified a new kingdom that will not ever pass away. Jesus is the king in his kingdom And he doesn't use people. And he doesn't abuse people. He doesn't objectify people or treat them according to what they can offer him. But he treats them with unconditional, steadfast love. Jesus spills his blood for you, brothers and sisters. He spills his blood for you and he serves his people. And he counsels his people. And he befriends his people. And he waits patiently for his people. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and he seeks after the one. And when he brings that one in, after he pursues and pursues and pursues, and he goes after and he goes after and he goes after his sheep, He goes after them and he brings them back into the fold. And then he rejoices that he has found them and brought them back. You see, Jesus is our substitute in death when he died on the cross. And he is our substitute in life when he lived a perfect life on our behalf. When he fulfilled the laws of God on our behalf. The laws of God were hanging over us in condemning fashion, you see. But Jesus came, he was born as a man, and he lived as a man, and he lived perfectly, righteously, under all of the law's demands. And on our behalf, he fulfilled every last one of the law's demands. The law's demands that you and I could never, ever fulfill or or, or stand up to. Jesus lived as our substitute in death. He lived as our substitute in life, you see. And we are counted righteous now because we have faith in Christ. Not because we succeed, not because we fail, but because Christ has fulfilled the law in perfect perfection. And we are counted righteous because our faith in Christ God now looks upon his children and he sees not me, but he sees Christ as a cloak over me. And I am righteous now. I'm accepted. I'm a child of God. That is glorious news. And when we think about the kingdoms of this world as a mess as they are, God is the God. Jesus is the king who laughs. He laughs at the kingdoms of this world. Oh, You who oppose me, oh, you who are going to stand up to my kingdom as if you're going to overthrow it. You are like an ant to a Navy SEAL. Jesus is the one who laughs at every kingdom and every king who stands up against the kingdom of God. And nobody will overthrow the work that Jesus has accomplished and is accomplishing and will accomplish on your behalf.
And therefore, I ask you, what's the most important thing about you? It is what God has done and what God is doing and what God will continue to do for you and for all of us and for his church and for his kingdom. So let's take confidence in God's covenant love. And as you navigate the uncertainties and the hardships of life as we experience it, take heart, brothers and sisters. We are in the midst of a contentious election. And I know many of you lose sleep over this. Our church has experienced upheaval. And I know many of you are burdened by this. As I've made my rounds around this church, I have been with you, and I know that many of you are facing hardships right now. Let me tell you this. The most important thing about you is not who takes the White House. And the most important thing about you is not how this church lands. The most important thing about you and about me is God's covenant love. And he will never leave us He'll never forsake us, and nobody or no thing will ever overthrow what he is accomplishing for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your covenant love to us. Thank you for your covenant love to Esther and to Mordecai and to all the Jews who faced an evil kingdom, an evil empire. Lord, thank you that nobody can stand up against you and nobody will overthrow your purposes. Lord, teach us to rest in your covenant love and your steadfast love. So I pray, Lord, that you would be with us now and that you would go forward in our midst, that you would blaze a trail forward and that we would deepen our faith and deepen our joy in you. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.